are you are you innovating as some token measure? Or are you innovating for real change? Are you innovating in such a way where those employees are going to think to yourself, this is the best possible place for me to be? Welcome to Work Matters, where we explore what leaders can do to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. I am your host, Thomas Bertels. Transformation and innovation is hard and often threatens the status quo. How do you overcome the inevitable obstructionism? That is a topic we are exploring today with Greg Larkin. Greg is both an entrepreneur and entrepreneur with extensive financial services experience. He is also the founder and CEO of the Punks and Pinstripes Network and the author of This Might Get Me Fired. In today's discussion, we explore why so many innovation efforts fail, how do you overcome obstructionism, what's the role of the CEO in driving innovation, and what are the crucial ingredients of a successful transformation. I hope you will enjoy this conversation. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. In your book, uh, This Will Get Me Fired, which is, by, way, and by the way, an excellent read, um, you share your experience driving innovation and change. Uh, what, what prompted you to write the book? So I think innovation and change, a lot of the people who write about it are people who have never gone through it. And they give solutions that aren't going to get you there. Um, you can use all the latest and greatest technology in the world. You can use all the greatest management techniques. I see you have Six Sigma behind you. Um, you know, you, you can do all of those things. Um, if you don't know how to understand obstructionism, who's going to block you, why they're blocking you, and how to get past them. If you don't understand that, you'll never win. You will never change anything. Um, and I, I wrote the book because in my experience, um, innovation itself is sort of misdiagnosed as something that requires great technology. Uh, that's not true. It requires great understanding of organizational psychology and how to overcome obstructionism. Um, and, and the people who are the great transformationists, the great enterprise innovators, understood that fundamentally. They were not in the business of building the latest and greatest widget. They were in the business of transforming an organization that wants to stay the same. Can you say from your own experience, maybe give us an example for, you know, one, I think, like where obstructionism really torpedoed something you were working on. And, and maybe another example where, you know, you were able to, to, to get through that wall of obstructionism and why. One, one of the failures that, that sticks out the most is when I was the director of innovation for Bloomberg. Um, it was in the immediate aftermath of the Arab Spring. And that had a big impact on capital markets. Um, oil prices were going very volatile and all the industries that depend on oil um, were equally volatile. And there is this question, if you sort of zoom out from the Arab Spring in its own right, um, how does geopolitical shock when countries and people fight with one another. How does it impact capital markets? Um, is there a pattern to it? Um, 
and that 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 was the that was a, a critical question you know how do you not just evaluate what's going to happen in egypt three months from now how do you understand what's the likely arc of the price of oil how is that going to affect uh auto manufacturers dependent on on oil etc and um and so one of the things that I did during that, uh, so basically I, I, I gathered up a crew of people. We hungered down in, a, in, in, the, in Bloomberg over a long weekend, and we built this model in three days with very little sleep that the minute a geopolitical shock was detected in the news, we could express what are the assets that were are in the range of the geopolitical shock and what based on historical precedent is the likeliest outcome in terms of how the price of those assets is is probably going to change what's the max what's the min and what's the the middle in other words in the same way that if a company says our earnings per share this quarter were you know three dollars and fifty cents a share a lot of investors are like great the correct price of its stock is x right it enabled investors to basically do the same thing based on the magnitude of you know syria and uh iraq are fighting this weekend <laughs> What is the correct price for the price of oil based on that? It was super cool. And uh, the leadership at Bloomberg loved it. They loved that we had taken the initiative. And so because of they loved it, they gave us a present. We got to team up with a bunch of McKinsey consultants. <laughs> and build this product. And of course, it was ready over the weekend. You know, we had a minimum viable product in one weekend. And McKinsey doesn't do minimum viable products. They do billable hours. They have an incentive to do things in a way that is overly bureaucratic, overly PowerPointed. And so seven months later, we finally presented a 80-slide PowerPoint deck to executive leadership. And I will never forget Norm Perlstein who later became someone I really admired as a leader, uh, said, you know, the Arab Spring happened six months ago. You know, we've moved on. Um, yeah, that that's that was the A, that was the last time I will ever work with with McKinsey um, or any any major strategy consulting firm. They are not allowed in anything I ever do, period end of discussion never um number one um number two the real lesson from that is not move fast and just get it done and get it shipped um yes true like always pitch an outcome never pitch an idea yes that's absolutely fundamentally true but always have someone like norm perlstein involved from the very beginning of your initiative who can say you know what you don't need all that bullshit put it to the side. What you actually need is get this out there, get people interacting with it. I will take care of all of the interference that's going to come in your direction. Um, the counter of that is that later on, I, I left Bloomberg. I'm, I'm, I'm the, the head of product for a joint venture between Google and PwC. 
and um took us six weeks six weeks to get a new basically a cash flow management tool for small businesses in market uh we, we had we had an executive leader in place right out of the gate um and that executive leader was very clear with us a lot of people objectively know that this innovation needs to happen but stand to lose a lot if this innovation happens it's going to mean that they are less important inside of this institution called pwc it means their clients need them less and need their software more so i'll fight that fight for you i'll tell you what you need to do to help win that fight um and I kind of understood intuitively after that, that you can never, that fight exists every time you change something. And if you don't have someone like that who will go in the trenches with you and fight alongside you, who understands what motivates these people, uh, who understands how to turn skeptics into supporters, uh, who understands that people will do insane acts of sabotage and obstructionism when faced with a dilemma of self-preservation or self-promotion and you have to be prepared for that um don't wish it away it's always there and be prepared for it before you start um that guy was a genius one of the one most wonderful executives i've ever worked with a guy called dave Pittman. uh just a fantastic leader and um he kind of opened my eyes to organizational chess you know as it pertains to innovation and transformation i find that really insightful right because i mean a lot of change efforts like have a, a sponsor right or a steering committee but but what you're talking about is really goes way beyond that right way beyond that uh a, a sponsor and a steering steering committee um it's not bad but it very rarely is having those difficult conversations about who has power in this organization whose power depends on this not working let's be really clear about that from the outset uh let's be very clear about whose fiefdom is going to be dismantled you know, let's have an honest conversation about all the ways in which we have historically gotten in our own way when we've tried this before. And a steering committee or a sponsor is often going to be like, hey, we're going to give you this perfectly crafted studio with all the design toys and all the technology toys, then you just make us a promise that you'll never make scalable money from this. So we actually don't have to have those existential conversations about who we are as an institution, how we have to change, what we need to stop doing, um, who has more power than is necessary for us to transform in the way that we need to. You know, you just keep it in that little innovation quarantine and we have ourselves a deal. And that's a very different thing than what Dave Pittman was saying, which was how do we understand what a 186-year-old accounting firm is going to have to do 
in order to be relevant anymore, in order to modernize, in order to get out of its centuries-old habit of selling billable hours and get into the habit of selling subscription-based software. Uh, that's that's a tough conversation to have, and you cannot have that with someone who's just, you know, a scrum master. <laughs> that's not good enough, and you need a hell of a lot more than a sponsor or a steering committee to, to get on the other side of that, unless the steering committee is willing to have that talk about obstructionism and how to become an anti-obstructionist. I think you're absolutely spot on, right? I mean, I see so many companies where they actually have good ideas, right? The, I mean, the products that they're building are not bad, but they just, they never, they never have escape velocity, right? They never get into the market. They never really displace what was there before, right? To your point, right? They get like quarantined somewhere. Culture and, and, you know, incentives and power and politics. So like organizational life is really like the primary root cause why innovations don't make it over the finish line. Is that, is that a true statement? Uh, I think every company has five different obstructionists that exist. The skeptics, the cops, the traditionalists, the territorialists, and the capitalist. If you ever are building something new, especially if it is mission critical, if it's very important, you will always encounter one of those five, maybe all five. And it, for every one of those defenses, just like in sports, just like in football, your football in Europe and American football in, in, in this country, the best teams are the ones who can recognize the defense and call the right play in response to it. You don't need a, a superstar athlete. You need someone who understands what's going to happen seven steps before it happens. And being a good innovator is not about launching a great product. It's being a great anti-obstructionist. It's understanding and recognizing the defense as soon as it emerges and recognizing when you encounter a skeptic, the play you call is pitch an outcome, not an idea. When you encounter the cops, the play you call is enlist your most fierce cop as your co-creator right out of the gate. When you encounter a traditionalist, somebody who says, that's not the way we do things around here. The play you call is never confront them directly. Always enlist a third party senior mediator to broker a deal between you and the traditionalist. When you encounter the territorialist, someone who says, don't you ever speak to my customer again. The play that you call is to defer and diversify. Don't ever say you have been mismanaging your account. It's time to step aside. Always say, you know what? I made a mistake. You're absolutely right. You have the business you have because you look after your client's best interests. So we'll see if we can make headway someplace else. I'm sorry to bother you. And you do. As soon as you make headway someplace else, at the very last minute, you say, it would be a shame if your client heard about this happening with so many other businesses. And knew that and found out that they were never given an invite. So we've saved them a seat if you're willing to invite them. When you are dealing with the capitalist, someone says who says, I'm gonna get killed if people find out that you're spending our money in this way. Uh, you have to be very clear with them. What is a reasonable return on investment? And and by that, that is how are we mitigating risk? 
reducing cost or growing sales and what is it how by how much and in what time frame you have to determine that from the outset that has to be one of your outcomes um most innovating most innovators skip that they don't do that they wish that obstructionism won't get in the way and then when it does they realize they made a bad wish and if you cannot build out that preemptive capability you're never going to get anything past the finish line and i'll say something else tom uh the you said escape velocity when you actually have that conversation with the people who are in your steering committee and are like, I want to make sure that all of us assembled around this table are very clear about the obstructionisms that we are going to encounter if this works. And I want to understand from each of you if you're prepared to fight through it when we encounter it. And if the answer is no, then we're just going to call this an extremely small scale experiment with no intention of having a meaningful impact on earnings or cultural transformation, which I'm comfortable doing. We can do that. That's fine. If you want to like borrow from the same budget as the office Christmas party and have this be a design thinking session, hundred percent, we can do that. Absolutely. Um, but if you actually need this to make a real dent and change the trajectory of this of this company or this industry, um, let's be very let's have that conversation about being an anti-obstructionist innovation team as early as possible, and, and and understand that I will call on you when we encounter these obstructionist roadblocks. I will recruit you and enlist you to fight through it, and if you're not comfortable with that, say so now. Um, and very few people do that. I, and, and by the way, I just, I have never had that talk with an executive leadership team at the stage of launch and had them say, like, universally, what you learn when you say that is obstructionism is as much of a headache and a pain point for executive leadership as it is for everybody else. They hate it. They hate it. They understand that they are under enormous pressure to change. They're under enormous pressure to modernize. They have to deal with all of the obstructionist political crap that everyone else has to deal with all the time. And when you are willing to level with them and say, hey, if this is going to work, you're going to need to be the guy or the woman who gets that, gets past it. Um, universally, consistently, the response has been, where have you been all my life? <laughs> Every time. Um, and I don't think that gets understood to the extent that it should and, and deserves to. I'm trying to picture like a scrum master, right? Uh, having that conversation with the senior management team. I'm wondering though, that also puts the burden on the person kind of driving or leading this innovation effort, right? And yourself, right? Building this product, right? Having that conversation, which is probably fair, but if you're a CEO and you're trying to kind of build the capability of the organization across the board, you can't just delegate it to Greg, right? To convince like the folks in the steering team to right, put that back into it, right? So what's, 
what are some things a CEO can do to kind of like prepare the ground for innovation to flourish? So they have to be very, very clear about what is red, yellow, and green in the company before you innovate. And I, I, I think that's something that doesn't happen often enough. In other words, where do we need to launch a new business in order to remain competitive? And where do we need to reverse the decline of a mature business in order to remain competitive? And, and, and how do you target innovation where it's essential, not just where it's interesting or experimental. It's really interesting, Tom. Um, you could argue that, that, that open AI represents the biggest threat to Google that Google's ever seen. That's one way to frame it, right? They being a second mover in generative AI is the worst mistake that Google ever made and the biggest threat. You can make that case. Okay. I would say I would reframe it entirely. Uh, the worst mistake Google ever made was that they let Sam Altman leave. He worked at Google. He's part of the entrepreneur exodus of Google. So did they give him plenty of autonomy? Did they say, hey, we just want you to enjoy your little toy box with all of your tech toys. We're going to pay you very well. You're going to have enormous prestige. And but here's the thing. Don't ever disrupt our core business. Just those guys who are over there and like Google X or Moonshot Factory, see if you can play with them. They do stuff that has no like no relevance to what we do for a living. You know, the guys creating uh, Waymo and driverless cars, see if they have, you know, but the rule is if you're actually dealing with our core business, just make sure you don't change the trajectory of it in a meaningful way. And so what do you do if you're a CEO and that's the current paradigm for where innovation lives and what it's expected to deliver? Um, you have to understand, like, are we, you have to be very, very clear about where does innovation need to work and where are we doing it at a scale and at a level of seriousness with enough support and authority and anti-obstructionist muscle where everyone understands that this needs to happen. Everyone understands that there's a price to standing in the way. Everyone understands that this is not just some science experiment, but this is something which is going to have to have a meaningful impact that has a impact on our earnings numbers on a quarterly basis. And if you're not willing to stand up and say that and push that um, and be proactive about it, and oftentimes have a difficult conversation with investors where you're saying, look, this is not going to be easy in the upcoming quarters. You're going to thank us later. Um, we have to be a first mover on that. I'm sorry. You know, I saw that in the beginning of my career when I worked on Wall Street. Jamie Dimon 
was not the darling of Wall Street at the end of the subprime mortgage boom, when he basically said, we are building a fortress balance sheet. We are going to pull away from this booming market. And it might mean that we drop in the league table in terms of underwriting and originations and securitizations of mortgage-backed securities because we don't think it's sustainable anymore. People forget that. He had the audacity and the courage and the strength to go on a quarterly earnings call, this young guy in a big bank, and say, we're going to leave a little money on the table. You'll thank us later. Um. That's a kind of leadership that if you're going to really change and innovate and be willing to be a little bit contrarian, uh, don't surprise anybody with that. You have to be able to take a leadership position and make your case to investors and to the general public. Um, very few CEOs are willing to do that. And the more mature the industry, the harder it becomes for them to make that statement. I've been reading your post about the uh, entrepreneurial exodus. And I've seen something similar. I do a lot of work in life sciences. And I've also seen a lot of people leaving the Pfizer's, the J&J's, the Novartis's and going to like small startups where you can be instead of like a VP somewhere in the development organization, you run R&D. And, and you also mentioned Sam Altman, right? And, and, and the Google exodus. So my perspective is that kind of like work is a product and employees are really like the customer of that product as a, as a product guy, right? How would you look at? work and, and role design and what needs to change? What would Google, for example, have to do to really keep like the Sam Altman's um, of this world in their pocket? The more senior you become as a, as a worker, the more your hierarchy of needs starts to shift. Um, it becomes a little bit, you know, when you start out, I think the, the, at least it was for me, um, what I wanted first was uh, make more money, you know, success and that money, power, recognition. Second from there was impact. Am I comfortable with the work I'm doing and the impact it has? Third, um, find your tribe. You know, am I working with people I can tolerate? And as time has gone on, the hierarchy of needs is completely inverted. I want to work with people I love working with, who I feel uh, that I owe them my effort, you know, who, who I, I, I owe it to them to make this better. Um, I want to know that I'm making the biggest dent in the universe that I possibly can with the work that I'm doing. And I want to make more money, have more recognition and have more power. But I understand that it is a dependent variable on those first two things being true. And if someone like Google is going to keep the Sam Altman's of the world, they have to satisfy those three requirements. Uh, and very often they satisfy that inverted, you know, they, they, they have to go, they tend to satisfy uh, status, impact, belonging in that order. They have to invert it. Uh, it's belonging, impact, status. And if anyone with as much talent as that at any point is asking themselves, is this the best I can do? Is this really the best I can do? 
um, they're going to leave. They know it. They, 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 the, the memo has gotten out and I and, and the data is irrefutable. I don't know if the memo's gotten out, but I collect. I'm still a at, at my heart. I am an alternative data economist, and that's how I began my career. And I cannot lose that habit. And the data of statistically speaking, the best entrepreneurs uh, are deep into their 40s and leave executive leadership in a Fortune 500 company. And um, that's the, 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 the most attractive media demographic is 18 to 25. So we never hear about that statistic. Um, but the demographic truth is what it is. And you get to a phase in your career where you start to think about the money you are leaving on the table, the impact you are leaving on the table. And every company needs to recalibrate based on that fact. Um, are you are you innovating as some token measure? Or are you innovating for real change? Are you innovating in such a way where those employees are going to think to yourself, this is the best possible place for me to be. Um, and if they don't feel that way, if they do leave, when one of the things that you see in in Wall Street and not so much in Silicon Valley and highly regulated industries, um, when they leave, they leave as allies. The companies they leave behind tend to become their first customers. They tend to become their first investors. Uh, it's a very amicable kind of alumni entrepreneur relationship. Usually a few people burn the whole thing down. I would not advise that strategy. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like that's, that's, uh, that's, that's missing. That mentality is missing and um, you, you kind of underdevelop that at your own peril if you're a CEO. So, I mean, you, you kind of fit right into that example, I guess, right? Uh, Fortune 500 in, in your 40s, I guess. 46. There you go, right? So, um, and, and you, you started the business, right? You created uh, an executive network, a community called Punks in Pinstripes. What's the idea, Greg? I love the title, but what's the idea? Punks and Pinstripes is an executive network for people who left corporate leadership to launch new ventures and for the punks who are still in corporate leadership who haven't left. And the entire reason for our existence is to help each other find our tribe, make a bigger dent in the universe and make more money. That's the idea. And in that order, um, and there's a really significant problem, um, which is why we exist. One of the unfortunate byproducts of the mythology of the dorm room, college dropout, Stanford dropout entrepreneur is that all of the communities that exist for entrepreneurs are for 25 year old entrepreneurs. A lot of the advice that's given to them is for is relevant when you're 25. And I was I was a 25 year old entrepreneur. I get it. It worked for me. 
Uh, and when I left Bloomberg and went back into entrepreneurship, I have two kids, I have a mortgage, I have a 401k. And I have this existential angst just burning in my soul about, is this really the best thing I can do with my finite time on earth? Um, and I needed a tribe. And the tribe that was made available to me was me shoehorning myself into executive communities or startup communities where everyone was that 28-year-old, that 29-year-old. And God bless them. I, I, I love them. But that's not where I was. You know, they hadn't experienced what I'd gone through. Um, and equally, when I was that corporate leader, you know, they would send me to, to like the, De the Deloitte Digital Summit. And that wasn't about finding your tribe and making a dent in the universe. That was about tactics. That was like the Six Sigma Super Bowl or whatever. No offense. Um, and and um, it, it wasn't about like, you know what? It's okay if this is really hard. That's not what was happening there. It wasn't, uh, hey, um, the advice you get for the most part is not from people who have ever lived through this. Let me explain my playbook as a survivor, not an observer, not as someone who's writing in HBR on a regular basis. No, let me explain when I was in your shoes, how I got out of this in a way that worked for everybody. That is a, that finding that support and that mentorship is so much harder the the older you get in your career um and, and punks and pinstripes we we offer that to one another all the time that's the entire community um it's pretty thrilling it's kind of uh yeah this is this is how i'm gonna go out tom is punks building punks and pinstripes and making sure that i kind of stay true to the promise of uh of what it can be yeah i think you're definitely making a making a dent there i mean i I've been able to join, I think, once or twice, and I think it's a fascinating group of people. And and I think again, it's like I think you know, with your, with your book, I think you 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 wrote a really good uh, playbook. I think based on lived experience. I really appreciate you coming onto the show and and sharing your ideas on transformation and how to overcome obstructionism. Uh, Greg, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is great. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, be sure to subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.